Thank you, Don and, and Susan. Thank you for blessing us with your music. Um, there's no better way to memorize the Word of God than to put it to song. Uh, even today, my kids will be singing songs that, that they learned, Scripture, they're singing Scripture that they learned from Steve Green's uh, CD, Hide Them in, their, in Your Heart, S-E-D. Um, praise the Lord. Thank you. If you would open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6, also, inside your bulletin, you'll notice that there is a, a note-taking guide, a sermon guide. I'll go ahead and pull that out. Uh, we're going to be get, covering a lot of information, a lot of uh, detail that I'd like for you to be able to take with you uh, today and, and apply it, to use it in your families this week. So if you would, open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And uh, just, uh, I should go ahead and point out in your bulletin, it said Hebrews chapter 6. That was my fault. I had Hebrews on the brain this week. I don't know what it was, but it's Deuteronomy chapter 6. In our home, in my oldest son's baby book, there is this picture. The, the picture is curled up. The edges are kind of worn. And the picture is, is two kids that are technically adults, but we were kids. It's Anne Marie and I. She's sitting in a wheelchair, and she's holding a baby, brand new baby, brand new. It's our oldest son. The picture was taken right outside of the room where Alex was delivered, and the occasion is she's being discharged. We're about to go home, and so they they took a picture. We asked them to take a picture. Anne-Marie's sitting in the wheelchair. She's holding our son, and I'm standing there beside her, and when you look at the picture, the first thing that you think is, wow, they look exhausted. We were already, right? We were exhausted. But what you really can't see in that picture is the look of fear. I may not look it, but I was feeling it. And not just because we were kids, but the responsibility. When it really culminated, those those feelings of fear, is that for me, it was that moment when they wheeled her down to the entrance of the hospital and I had pulled the car around. I got out and I opened the back door and I was putting my son in the car seat. It was my job to put him in the car seat to buckle him up and then the nurse made sure I did it right because it was my first time, right? At that moment, I realized I am responsible for this little human being. Not just physically, not just feeding him and clothing him and making sure that he had the best education, but I was responsible for leading him to Jesus. For Anne-Marie, she shares that the moment was later, when it really hit her, is when we got to our little dark apartment, and we walked in, and the door closed behind us, and it was just the three of us. It's like, where's the help, right? It's us. But that pressure, that, that realization that, that we, too, are responsible for leading this child to Jesus. What is, let me ask you this question, this is probably the most important question that we could wrestle with, and that is, what is the primary delivery system? When you want to communicate biblical truth, when you want to, to communicate God's truth from generation to generation, what is the primary method of that communication? It's the family. 
It is our responsibility, individual families, we are the conduit, we are the, the means that biblical truth is, is carried on from generation to generation. And that's what Moses got in Deuteronomy chapter 6. By the way, this passage is so important. It's called the Shema, which is Hebrew for here, because that's the way it begins. Listen up, people, is the way it starts. Right? This passage is so important that every Jewish family prays this prayer together every single day. Hebrew, or Hebrews. See? <laughs> Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That's the goal. That's the destination. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. So this is the key, verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign in your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So when I look at this passage, as I look at other passages, I do a little self-assessment. I look at it and I say, how am I doing? The question for us is, how are we doing, families? How are we doing? I think the answer, if we're, if we're truly honest... Overall, we're not doing very well. Overall, I'm not picking on anybody in particular, but when I'm looking at Christendom, when I'm looking at Christianity, and even when I narrow it and make it a little more specific, and I just look within our denomination, overall, we're not really doing all that great of a job in, in taking biblical, godly truth and disseminating it from generation to generation. And I would say that part of the problem that is affecting us at Arden and the rest of Christianity is time. It's time. There is so much screaming for our attention. So much. Christian Smith is a a PhD sociologist. He did a study called the National Study of Youth and Religion. He's not a Seventh-day Adventist. I think he's an evangelical. I'm not sure. But he is a sociologist that writes primarily on issues of faith. And he has this to say. Religious faith and practice in American teenagers lives, um, lives, excuse me, lives. (laughs) Maybe I need to sit down and start with Hebrews. Religious faith and practice in American teenagers' lives operate in a social and institutional environment that is highly competitive for time, attention, and energy. Now, the sermon isn't specifically for teens. It applies to all of us, but teens, can you resonate with that, that you live in an environment that is highly competitive for your time, um, your attention, your energy? But he goes on to say, religious interests and values in teens' lives typically compete against those of school, homework, television, other media, sports, romantic relationships, paid work, and more. By the way, I overheard an academy student a year or two ago. He was expressing frustration. He was saying that more than anything, he wanted to know the Lord. But his schedule was so full 
that he didn't have time to connect with Jesus in devotionals. That he heard a lot about God, but it was tough for him to walk with God, to know God personally because of how busy the schedule was. See, too many of us, too many of us have pushed the study of Scripture to the back burner. In fact, for some of us, uh, there's no room on the stovetop at all for spiritual things. Most of our kids, and I'm speaking in a general sense, most of our kids are not regularly reading the Bible, and they are not regularly praying, even though study after study shows that these practices create a deeper faith commitment. Parents, grandparents, if someone knocked at your door today, and they were... They said, I have one thing that you can do that will improve your chances more than anything to see your kids in heaven. And all it is, is that you spend time in the Word of God with them every single day and pray with them and teach them to pray. Would you do it? Would you do it? Amen. And that's what the studies show. Smith goes on to say this. He says, We suspect that youth educators and ministers will not get far with youth. Let me read that again. We suspect that youth educators and ministers will not get far from youth unless, get far with youth, unless regular and intentional religious practices become as, impo- as important, or access the typo, an important part of their larger faith formation. We have fantastic spiritual leadership in our academy. We do. Godly chaplain. But it's not her responsibility. And it is not my responsibility. And it's not our youth pastor's responsibility for spiritual formation in our youth. That responsibility does not rest on pastors. It does not rest on teachers. It does not rest on academy chaplains. It does not rest on Bible teachers. It it rests on parents and grandparents. It's our responsibility. It's our responsibility. You can, and this is truth, you can impact your child's faith life. And the most effective way to do that is by reading and teaching Bible in the home. And God's entrusted you with that task. I know some of you are thinking, well, there is no way that I can do that. There is no way that I can do that. Pastor's been to seminary, right? Mrs. States has been to seminary, (laughs) How am I going to to take the scriptures? Truth be told, a lot of it, I don't understand. How am I going to teach this to my kids? Well, first of all, let me just say that God wouldn't give you a responsibility. God wouldn't hold you accountable unless you could do it. Right? So let me give you some home basic or home training basics. And the first is, is to read the Bible. So why is, it, why is it important to read the Bible as, as a family? Well, I would say, first of all, it's because the Bible is the very Word of God. It is not the good Word, it is the Word of God. It is not just another book, it is the book. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. You see, the scriptures are so important is because the Bible is the plumb line of everything. 
the, the Bible is what we judge everything else by. Every other book is judged by the Bible. Every belief is judged by the Bible. Every social activity is judged by the Word of God. It is the very Word of God. It is also the primary tool for preparing us for lives of godliness and service. By the way, you'll notice on the screen the words in bold and underline. Here's a hint. That's what you fill into your study guide. So if you got behind, you just realize, oops, here's your chance. You fill it in. Godliness and service. In that very next verse in 2 Timothy chapter 3, it says, So that the man of God, the man and woman of God, may be adequate, equipped for every good work. It is the primary tool for preparing you for lives of godliness and service. But it's also a way that God makes us like Jesus. In 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 4, it says, And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to live with much prosperity. Is that what it says? Well, no, it doesn't say that. It says these are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature. You see, it is the word of God that recreates you. It is the word of God that transforms you. It is the word of God that makes you in the image of Jesus. Not God-like. You're not a God like Jesus is, but it makes you like Jesus in that you have his character. People look at you and they see Jesus. That comes from the word of God and the promises in it. And also, it is important to read the Bible as a family because it is a change agent. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says, For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and our desires. It changes us. And again, you might be thinking, well, my kids are not theologians. <laughs> you know, my kids are, are not pursuing a deeper understanding of complex theological ideas, Pastor. Well, that, you know what that means? Well, that means they're normal. Your kids are normal. But they may not be pursuing an understanding of deeper theological um, principles at this moment in life, but they do have questions. They have questions. And a lot of those questions may seem very simple. Well, you know this. They've asked you <laughs> just a few words, and you try to answer it, and you go, oh, that is deep. A few weeks ago, we were remembering the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We had a cross up here, and the congregation, you were invited. You remember to write your sins down on a sheet of a little piece of paper and bring it to the foot of the cross, and then we symbolically drip the blood of Christ on that to cover it. Do you remember, Gracie? Gracie, uh, how old is Gracie? Is Gracie four? Four. Gracie comes up and she asks me, Pastor Eric, Pastor Eric, why is Jesus on the cross? Now that is a deep theological question. Why is Jesus on the cross? Or the email that I got a few months ago that um, an eight-year-old asked his mom to write me an email. And the question is this. How is it that God is eternal? That God has no beginning? Because everything has a beginning. An eight-year-old has that question, right? Or, who is Cain's wife? 
people, kids, have questions. So what do you do? What do you do? Now, primarily, I'm speaking, this is a little just parenthetical expression. You know, as you're listening to me, most of what I'm saying, I'm talking to parents. I'm talking to parents, you have kids at home. But I'm not just talking to parents with kids at home. I'm talking to, to grandparents who are raising children. And I'm talking to grandparents who, who see their kids, their grandkids, periodically. And you have influence because this applies to you. Because you are incredible influences for your, your, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren for holiness. And let me just add that I realize that there are grandparents here that don't have contact with their grandkids. Because they have kids, adult kids, who are more like kids, who are in the world, and they think that this message of the good news of Jesus Christ is going to mess up the grandkids. And so they have stiff-armed you. And they have isolated you. So let me just say that we recognize that. And we are praying for you. Praying for you. And realize that your prayers are heard. You may not have the ears of your grandkids. But the Holy Spirit does. So you keep praying. You keep praying. So what do we need to do for these questions, to deal with these questions? Well, first of all, we need to create a space in our homes where kids are given opportunities to ask the questions out loud and have their questions answered. So how do I create a safe place? How do I create a safe place for my kids to ask questions? Well, first of all, give your children permission to ask the questions. And you might be thinking, well, of course they have permission to ask questions, but But let me just say, if they ask you the question and your response, whether verbally or body language, is not now, kid, I'm busy, it's not a safe place. So when you hear a question coming, a spiritual question, any question from your kid, create the space. You you stop what you're doing and you engage them. Create that place and let them know that it's safe. They have permission to talk to you. They have permission to interrupt you. Yeah, I did not. I was not raised in a, a, a very Christian home. In fact, my, my dad was involved in the, the New Age movement, was not a Christian at all. He was more Buddhist than anything. But I remember being in the car, driving with my dad, age 10 probably, and I remember asking him a question, and I remember his response was, not now I'm listening to the radio. Now, 38 years later, I remember that exchange. And I've repeated that exchange where I was the dad. God forgive me. But listen, listen, be engaged. So give your children permission to ask the questions. Next, validate their question. Say something like, that's a fantastic question. That's a great question. I've often wondered that question myself. I've wondered the same thing. And even take it to a step farther, a farther and recognize what's going on in the heart of your kid and say, do you know why you're asking me that question? That's God speaking to your heart. You're six years old and the Holy Spirit is talking to you. Praise God. Validate that. And thirdly, Answer their questions. Now, that seems 
pretty obvious, right? But listen, if, if you give your kids permission to ask the questions and you validate their questions, so they, they ask it, and, and you say, that's fantastic, that's a great question, and you never get around to answering the question, what they learn from that is either A, the Bible doesn't have the answers to the questions that I'm wrestling with, or B, you have no clue what the Bible has to say, right? So you need to give them an answer. Now, listen, I'm asked a question weekly that I don't know the answer to, okay? And you know what my response is? I don't know. That's a good question. Um, Let me get back with you, or let's study it out together. Or recently I said, why don't you talk to um, Elder Max up here and let him work and study it out, right? You're welcome, Max. (laughs) But it's okay to say, I don't know. And, you know, there are some questions that you can't answer. You just can't answer. I mean, there's the, the, in the seminary, we joke about the questions that go like this. How many angels fit on the head of a pen? Um, You know, there's some stuff that's pointless. Other stuff that we just don't know. Because we're talking about divinity here, right? Even... Even Paul, the Apostle Paul, as smart as he was, he says, now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror, but then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know every, everything completely just as God knows me completely. See, there are some answers we won't get until we get to heaven. All right? It's okay to say that. But if there's something there's an answer to, get busy and figure it out. And there's, it's a fantastic lesson to teach the kids, have them explore with you, to say, let's study it out together. Because that leads to my fourth point, and that is teach them to answer their own questions. What I'm looking for as I'm discipling my children is not a, a little ones who become big that can only regurgitate what they've learned from me. I want them to be able, when, when they face a dilemma, a the, uh, an ethical dilemma, a theological dilemma, I want to give them the tools to dig in and find the answer for themselves, not pick up the phone and call me, right? So you want to teach them to dig into the Word and find His answers. So... Home training basics. First, read the Bible. Second, build a library. Now, some of you are pretty literal. I said build a a library, and you're thinking of Andrew Carnegie who built 2,500 libraries in roughly 40 years. And you're thinking, he wants me to go out and build a library? Well, if you're going to replace the Fletcher Library, yes, that's what I mean. (laughs) But otherwise, that's not what I mean. I don't mean mean to build a, a building. But what I mean is collect books that help teach the Bible. I think it's safe to say that all of us, all of us read to our kids when they were little, right? You had a board book, right? And they were sitting in your lap and they were cooing and and drooling and you're reading and pointing out the pictures, right? Now listen, I like green eggs and ham just about as much as anybody. Not the food, the book, okay? And I like how romantic the stories are about poor girls becoming princesses, right? But listen, this is your shot. There are hundreds, hundreds of books written to help parents lead their children to a relationship with God. 
So skip the books that teach your little girls to dress up like princesses. Instead, read them the books that describe that they are the daughters of the king of heaven, and that makes them a princess, right? Right? So teach them. Teach them when they're just drooling and and, and cooing and whatever. Teach them because they're learning. They're learning. And you know the babies. They get to the point where that book... And, and there, are, and I'm not saying that every book has to be a spiritual book. One of my favorites was Good Night Moon. I meant one of the kids' favorites. <laughs> but when they're asking for the same book over and over again, what an opportunity it is. What an opportunity to, to, to teach them, to disciple them. So when you're building the library, collect books that help teach the Bible, but also collect books that will help your kids understand the Bible. So when the questions come, when they come, you have the tools there. Tools for you and tools for your kids. By the way, I can't, I can't think of anything else that brings... Well, how can I qualify this? Let me just say, it brings me great joy when I find that one of my kids, in their private devotional time, they're, studying the, they're reading the Bible on their own, and, they, and I walk out of my room and I find that they are surrounded in their room with their Bible and books right? They got a concordance out, right? And they're looking up words in the concordance. And, and they have a Bible dictionary out, and they're looking up theological terms so they can understand it. Have those kinds of books. Have a concordance. Have a Bible dictionary in your home. Have a Bible encyclopedia in your home. Imagine the picture, or this, this picture in your head. You're, you're reading the story of Jonah, Right? And, and you use an encyclopedia or an atlas to look up where Nineveh and Tarshish are, right? So now they have the visual on a map of exactly what Jonah is doing, right? He went from here, and he went here when he was supposed to go here. Get those tools available. By the way, there are the SDA commentary, if you don't have a set... Find an Adventist in the community that's having a yard sale, and you'll find a set. And if it's the old green set, that's fine too. Or if you can't find one, or you don't want to buy one, whatever, you can you can get the ebook version, ninety nine cents a volume, right? So download those in PDF form. You take a, a volume that's this thick, right, and it's PDF for ninety nine cents. Get those and and teach your kids how to use them. Learn how to use them, and then teach your kids how to use them. And then make your home a library by collecting books that help your children to think biblically. Listen, if you don't teach your kids how to make decisions, do you know who will? SpongeBob. Um, I don't want SpongeBob teaching my kids how to make decisions. Talk about foolishness, right? So turn off the TV. And may I cross a line? Better yet... Throw the stupid thing out. There is no worse device. Well, okay. Now, how do I qualify that with all the devices that we have? Just get rid of the TV. Just get rid of the TV. Get rid of it. And hand your kids a book. Hand them a book that teaches Christian character traits. There are fantastic books out there. My Bible friends, we still have that set. Not because my youngest, who's 17, likes to go down and read them. 
He doesn't. But we're saving them for the next set of baits, right? And there are all sorts of, of, of books. There's the Help Me Be Good series. Have you seen those? Cover all the character traits that you want to teach your kids. Give them those. Turn off the TV. And, and, and collect those that help them think biblically. By the way, one of the biggest battles that we're facing is the battle of worldview. So you put the books in front of them that, that teach the worldview that the Bible calls them to have. Okay? Fourthly, with your building your library collection, collect books that will help connect your children to the church and our history. Back in January, I was asked to teach a couple of classes at, at Southern, a couple of religion courses. One was for a group of theology students, and that was fantastic, right? Because they were like, they were seniors, they were about to graduate, and it was that moment when they realized, I don't know anything, right? And they're starting to panic, and don't worry, it's another 20 years before they start, okay? But, but the other class that I took was, or taught was a life and teachings class, so it's just general student body. And I taught the class, and I made some assumptions. I'm teaching the genealogy of Jesus, and I made this comment. I said, and you see, Ruth is there. You remember Ruth. You remember Ruth. No, we didn't remember Ruth. Remember Rahab and the spies? Spies? Are we talking like James Bond? Oh, excuse me, um, Jason Bourne? Who? The, it is alarming, the, the, the biblical illiteracy out there. You know, ardent kids excluded, right? It's scary. But listen, there are so many biographies out there. There are biographies that are written for adults. There are biographies that are written for teens. There are biographies that are written for juniors. Biographies about the people who laid the foundation for Martin Luther and the other reformers to build on. Incredible biographies. There are fantastic biographies about the, the pioneers of the Adventist movement. And you read their stories. And you read, how many of you know the story about the potato patch? The rest of you need to look it up. You see, when you don't understand those stories, you don't understand Adventism, you don't understand faith, you don't understand the way that God has led us as a people. I won't ask for a show of hands, but you can answer it inside. How many of you know about Ellen White's sock that she saved money in? You know about that? How many of you know about Ellen White's guard dog in Australia who is named after an Assyrian king? You know those stories? Get the history books into your home so that your kids are learning about Christianity, learning about the movement of God. By the way, there is a, a fantastic, well, okay, it's not fantastic. There's a video series. It's probably just on VHS still. It's called Keepers of the Flame. Now, the content is fantastic. Now, the production is, is good, too, for a laugh because it was really done cheap. In fact, the, the kids still laugh about, I think it's this, the, the woman in the wilderness, and you know what they have? They have Lucifer, they have Satan wearing a Darth Vader mask. So when you watch it, it it's funny. That's funny. But, but the history that it teaches, uh, Keepers of the Flame, is fantastic. Find a set. I'm sure you can get them really cheap, but get them. But listen, there is, there's no magic bullet. There is no magic bullet 
But listen, when it comes to raising godly children, there is a roadmap. There's a roadmap. How frustrating it is to have a conversation with someone who's saying, We're dying as a family. We're dying of dehydration. We're drying up. And an endless supply of water is right there. You see, the Bible has everything that we need. And in addition, we are so blessed as a people, in addition to having the Bible, we have some fantastic books. Some fantastic books. Adventist Home, Child Guidance. Open those books. And, and, and get a vision for, for your family. It's beautiful. But whatever, make a commitment right now to teach the Bible, the Word of God in your home, and pray. Pray that God will give you the courage. Pray that God will give you the commitment. Pray that God will give you the endurance to see it through. Listen, if, if right now you're looking at your life and you're looking at the schedule and, and you're thinking, well, all I can do, I might be able to squeak out one day a week. Well, please start there. Start there. One day a week, start there. But make a point. Two points. Make a point to eat supper together. Eat a meal together. Make a point of doing that. And, and then, if, if that's the only time that you have together as a family, read the scriptures together then. But do it. Whatever you do. Whatever you do, read the Bible in your home. And listen, it doesn't have to be Old English. There are so many good modern-day translations. The, the New Living Translation, NLT, is, is written in such a way that, that kids understand it, they get it, and it is, it is accurate to the original languages. It's a good translation. But get something. Get something. And read it in your home. Before I give you your homework, there's one thing I want to add, and that is this. There are no guarantees, okay? There are no guarantees. I once had the idea if I, if I did everything right, if I crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's just right and did all of the, the education in my home correctly, that, that my kids would never have a struggle. <laughs> yeah. There are no guarantees. There are no guarantees. Except if you do nothing. So do what we've got. Move forward with what we have. So here's your homework. Here's your homework. So your action steps for the week. There are three. First is this. Make a commitment to read through a book of the Bible with your family this week. And just as a reminder, dads, if you're a dad here in in a an intact family unit, the dad's here. Listen, that's your job. Lead that family worship. I've said it before. I can't say it enough. When you, when you dads shirk your responsibility to lead your families spiritually, you're setting them up for failure, especially when you have sons especially when you have sons, because what happens is our boys see the dynamic. They see mom calling the family together for worship. They see mom doing the reading. They see dad looking at his phone or, or keeping an eye on the sports or whatever he's doing. And what they hear, you're not saying it out loud, but what, you, what they hear is spirituality is good for the women. But when I'm a man, it's not for me. And that is a lesson in the early years of my kids that I taught them. God forgive me. Guys, lead. 
So your boys know it's not just for the girls. It's important. It's life-changing. Take the lead. And you be responsible for gathering everybody together. Say, hey, it's time. It's time. I don't care what's on TV. I don't care what, what you're going to do with Sally or whatever. I know no one's kids age named Sally anymore. Anyway, get them all together. Get them all together. It's time for worship. Second, buy a Bible for every member of the family. Even if, if, you're, if you've just got a, a baby that drools still, get them a Bible. And you talk to them about this is your Bible, this is God's Word, and this is for you. By the way, not my, just a brief snippet of my testimony. I was raised in a nominal Christian home. Someone gave me, when I was a little, little boy, probably five or six, gave me a children's illustrated Bible. It's about this big. And I walked away from Christianity for much of my teen years, all of my teen years, and lived a life that I regret to this day. But when I came back to the Lord, that Bible had been saved for me. And when I looked at it, there were so many memories. And I opened it, and I saw Eric written on almost every page, letters written backwards. I saw pictures that had been already illustrated where I guess it wasn't good enough. I had drawn over them and... And there were pages missing that had been torn out and stains. But that Bible impacted my life. Even little. So every member of the family needs a Bible. And then, thirdly, lastly, once you establish a habit of reading the Bible, find a devotional, find a short Bible, family Bible study that you can do as a family. Do it. Stay in the Word of God. Stay in the Word of God. And what you'll see is a transformation take place in your life, in your kid's life. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the word that you have given to us. So much more than a history book. It is a book that transforms us. And Lord, I know that there are others here with regret, like I have regrets. I know many of us have regrets. It's like I wish I knew then what I know now. There's a word for you as well from the prophet Joel, that God will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. So don't be discouraged this morning if, if this is new to you and you missed out and, and you see the, the results in your family today because you didn't instill the Word of God then. Don't be discouraged. It's not too late. Make the changes now. Dig into God's Word and, and share it with your family. And pray. pray. But for those of us who still have influence, who still have an ear to our children, I pray, Father, that you would not allow us to waste another second. That, that we, would, we would realize how little time we have before they fledge. How little time, how quickly it goes. And may it be the greatest priority of our lives. Biggest priority, more than promotions, more than cars, more than homes, more than vacations. But instilling the word of God and a love for God in the hearts of our children. May that be our greatest priority. And if anything else gets in the way of that, we toss it immediately, without second thought. Give us that kind of courage, that kind of self-denial. 
In Christ's name, I pray. Amen. Just before we have our, our closing hymn, uh, there is one other thing I'd like to do. You know, in the, the scriptures, there is a, a word that is used all over. You know, it's com- uh, frequently used in the New Testament. You know it. It's apostles. Apostle. The word is, is, it comes from the Greek, and it means to send out. I guess it was almost a year ago that we had Sam come up here, and we prayed for her before we sent her to Zambia, right? And we praise the Lord for bringing her back safely. We praise the Lord for the ministry that, that he did through her while she was there. But we have missionaries that we're sending out tomorrow. Uh, 7.30s when they come, the staff come. On Monday, right? Not Sunday. Monday. So our flag camp staff are missionaries. So I'm going to invite this, the flag camp staff back up onto the, flat, the platform. And we're going to have a prayer of dedication for them as they head out into the mission field on Monday. Come on up. And why don't we go ahead and stand together as we pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for these men and women that you have called to be ministers of the gospel. Lord, a lot of times this coming summer, they will feel inadequate and overwhelmed. They will have young people who have no background, who barely even recognize the name Jesus, come to them and ask them some really difficult questions about him, about God. And they will have moments this summer when they have little ones come up to them and tell them about horrendous things happening in their homes. Father, this staff, this group of men and women need wisdom that many who are older, much older, lack. So, Father, I pray that you would pour your spirit into each of them, that you would grant them wisdom, and as they enter into the mission field every day, every morning for the next eight weeks, that you would bless them, that your spirit would shine through them, that you would give them patience beyond measure, that you would give them insight into the hearts of little ones that you would help them as they take the gospel that's so complicated and yet so simple. Help them, Lord, to communicate it in terms that the 5-year-old and the 12-year-old and every age in between can see it and understand it and fall in love with their Savior, Jesus. I pray that every day that you would bless them so that they would sow seeds in the hearts of these children. So on that day, when the trumpet is, uh, sound is, it goes out around the world, And we are gathered together by our Lord Jesus Christ that there will be little ones there. Because of this ministry. Because the time that these young people invested in the lives of these little ones. That's why we do this. So bless them, I pray, in Christ's name. Amen.